Hi, and welcome to The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Leslie Block and Zoe Bisbing both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two, here to help you help your children fully bloom. This episode is brought to you by the letter J for junk food. To gain access to the virtual guide to this episode, please subscribe to the Full Bloom Project mailing list at fullbloomproject.com. Our virtual guides help reinforce the ABCs of body-positive parenting by providing additional research and resources so you can help your children fully bloom. We're back for part two of our conversation with Evelyn Triboli, the award-winning dietitian and co-pioneer of the intuitive eating concept. For those of you who missed part one, Evelyn talked to us about raising intuitive eaters and shared research-backed evidence that supports the mental and physical benefits associated with this approach. We also talked about how intuitive eating helps our kids stay connected to their authentic selves, to their hunger cues, their needs, their preferences, and how in so many ways intuitive eating is a gateway to blooming in full. We left off calling out the societal tyranny of food rules that has confused many of us, Zoe and I included, about what our children should be eating, particularly when it comes to what many of us know as junk food. Now let's get back to Evelyn Triboli. I'm curious in your 25 years if you've noticed more rules that have just emerged in our culture. Yeah, I've noticed more rules and rigidity. And that's that's what just, there's nothing wrong with having preferences. There's nothing wrong with wanting to feed your family in a certain way. But when it gets to the point that you either feel superior about it or inferior, that's problematic. When you get to the point where you're feeling shame based on, on what you're feeding your family or what you're eating, shame has no role in, in, in food because, you know, guilt, especially guilt, is based on breaking a, a, a moral code. Unless you killed somebody or stole the food or stole the money to get the food, there's no reason to be having this kind of, of guilt. And, and that's, that's a form of suffering that's just totally un, unnecessary. And I've been seeing it play out, you know, not just in the family dynamic, but when kids are at school, sometimes the messages they get from their teachers are shaming, sometimes from their their um, health classes that they're, that they're taking based on, on their age. And so the, the really issue behind all of this, I think, ultimately, is intuitive eating is really about empowerment. It's an empowerment tool, and it's an inside job. And because it's an inside job, this is something that parents and families can help cultivate, but it's a, a child that, that, that actually listens and gets to put this online, listening to, to their bodies. And completely related to what you're saying with increasing rigidity, I think with increased rigidity and sort of wellness culture or like health, I don't know what it's even called now, but like the wellness (laughs) diet that's out there. Um, And we see a lot of it here in New York City, just this like value judgment placed on processed foods and halos around kale smoothies. And so we 
think it might be a nice time to talk about junk food because I'll say that I love the way you talk about junk food and reframing junk food in your book because junk food is like, it's such a popular term and everybody uses that term, um, even well-meaning parents. But I wonder if you could help us understand, you know, what might be problematic about the use of that word and also what are some alternatives? Yeah, you know, part of, part of the reason behind all of this, in fact, Elise and I had some very lengthy discussions around this. We feel so passionately about our work, you know, like is play the right word to use. And it's about taking the judgment out of eating. It's about taking the shame out of eating and taking the identity. You're not a good or bad person based on, on what you eat. And there's the phenomenon that happens over and over and over again when food is not a big deal, when you can take it or leave it, it suddenly it's just food. It's, it's, it's not a big deal. And that's a wonderful thing to play out. But if you have shame and you start eating in secret and then start eating in quantities because you don't know when you're going to have that food again, it's really, really problematic. And what really matters, and I think this is an important message for parents when it comes to nutrition, because that's what I hear concerns about. They want their kids to be healthy, is we're looking at the total health of a kid, which includes their well-being, which includes their psychosocial growth as, as well. And one meal, one day, not even a week will make or break your kid's eating. It's what you do over a pattern of time with um, consistency. So it's, I think it's an important aspect of this, that basically all foods can fit. And certainly there is a nutritional difference between eating a piece of, of apple pie versus an apple. But the idea that all foods fit has to do with our emotional wellness. And if having a, I don't know, let's say a cookie or a piece of cake or whatever it happens to be, you eat that and you're satisfied and you're done, you go on doing whatever it is you're going to do. But if from out of health reasons, it's like, well, that's that's junk food. So instead of having apple pie, I'm going to put applesauce on a whole wheat cracker. Uh, you're not satisfied. And that might lead to consuming more food than ultimately that apple pie because it didn't hit the spot. So it's an interesting, vicious cycle that gets into um playing itself out. We call it the last supper eating. When you think you're never going to have a food again, you're going to have actually have more of it. You're not even tasting it. And then when you add guilt on top of that, that really interferes with the pleasure of eating. I just wanted to make sure we got you on record using that word play food, because I, I want to make sure that we capture that. I know you're explaining well why not assigning a moral judgment is imperative, but can you tell us a little bit about why you guys chose the word play food as a substitute for the word junk food? Yeah, we use the word play food because it's like a kid plays is is part of life. And so play food acknowledges you might not be getting a lot of nutrients from it, but there's a pleasure aspect that you get. And, you know, one of the, the, the things that really influenced me in all of this is just looking at how kids are raised in France. You know, when they're in preschool, in their preschool system in Paris, they sit down to a three course meal, which includes dessert. You know, it's all part of the process. It's all part of the joy. You you enjoy and you're you're satisfied and and you're finished. So play is kind of a, a neutral a neutral term. It sounds a little bit joyful. So that that's why we chose that word. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, kind of what questions you often get from parents around play food. Oh yeah. So the question I often I get all kinds of questions. So I'll get the question on how often is too much, what is what is too little. 
And especially when a parent, when a family dynamic has been where there's been no play food at all, how do you how do you integrate that? So one of the things that I like to do is I like to make it no big deal, and I like to make it random. You know, so sometimes you have dessert that's a, that's a play food, and sometimes you don't. Because I don't want to build in an expectation. Sometimes I might suggest to a family that maybe lunch is a good place to do this because you're putting all the food in at the same place. You know, a little treat, play food. You know, with a sandwich and fruit or something like that. And so the child truly has autonomy in how they're going to be eating that. So there's all different kinds of ways. And I'll give you an example of play food that has really stuck with me. Um, I was working with a woman who has uh, compulsive eating, and she was talking about the difference with how she was raised in her family versus her husband's family. She was raised in a family of all girls where appearance was important, including weight. They had rigid rules around uh, not eating, quote, junk food. And as a result, that became her obsession. On the other hand, her husband was raised where they actually had a junk food drawer where there was candy, there were cookies, there were chips. And to this day, she said, I will look at him and I can't believe it. He can take it or leave it. A candy bar. He might have a bite. He might have a two bites. It's no big deal. And so that's the other thing that the research has been really clear on with kids is that the more you restrict a food, no matter how good your intentions are, the kids tend to be more obsessed about that food. And so it creates the very opposite thing you're trying to do. That's an important point, and it sounds like there's some persuasive research behind that. So yeah. uh, we'd like to ask you an impossible question. Oh. <laughs> um, we would like to know if you had to pick one thing, one very concrete, clear thing that our listeners can do tomorrow and optimally do on the regular, that just captures the spirit of all the work that you've done and all that you know, what's that one thing? Wow. Well, I'll tell you the first thing that comes to my mind, just uh, as, as you said, that was having family meals together to the degree that you can, that's practical. And I realize as families get older, that gets a little harder with scheduling, but the more that you can do that and, and with the intention of having it being a joyful time with a variety of foods, that's what I would, I would do. And sometimes it means maybe having the, the kids, you know, do the menu and, and pick it out. And here's the other thing for the time pressed families, doesn't have to be a home cooked meal. It could be something that you you pick up. And, and one of the things that's related to this, and I would call this a guideline rather than a rule, but it would be the optimal world would be in that family meal that devices are turned off. That means no TV, no cell phones on the table. And granted, there's exceptions, you know, when the um, Olympics are on or something like that. But for the most part, this is a time to connect with the family, and it's a time to connect with our own bodies. No one can be the boss of your body except for you. And we want to cultivate that empowerment tool in each of our kids. Yeah. That coming together as a family as best you can, it really helps with that connection piece. And that's what you're talking about, that connected eating and connected, you know, just being a connected person. So uh, I think that that was a good answer. Oh, good. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for being with us tonight. I so appreciate your joining us and uh, everything that you've contributed to this knowledge base and everything you've been able to share with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. So Leslie, how's it going raising your little intuitive eaters? Oh my gosh, I do all this stuff. You know, how did this happen almost? How, how did I like start disconnecting my kids from their intuitive eating? It kind of feels 
so normal and so abnormal to be ra- like to raise an intuitive eater. Absolutely. I notice how intuitively for me as a parent limiting desserts seems reasonable. And offering desserts like all the time anytime wouldn't seem reasonable. Although then again, she's not saying that. She's not saying to sort of never limit. I think she's charging parents in that sadder style of offering the food and charging the child with eating the food and determining how much of what's being offered. So there's an instinct that we have to, to not do this. And it's kind of like, is it, is, it an, is it nature versus nurture, you know? Are we just really raised in a, in a culture where this makes us feel a little uncomfortable and we don't trust? And I think that's one of her, the valuable piece of her work is to really learn how to trust and to yeah. see that you can trust. I mean, intuitive eating is all about that, you know, that you can trust and we've really kind of been sold that you can't. Um, right. And I, I don't really think that I was raised this way, so it's hard to model that, you know, to, to model something that is new for us, even though, as always, like I really appreciate doing things based on research than based on just what's always been done. I've been trying to do this a lot more with my kids and, it's really interesting to watch them. I think one of the things to remember if you do, if you are a listener and you try it out, is that your kids will, like, not trust you at first. That, you know, that you might see them eating a lot of dessert for a little while. I, I tried this yesterday. The girls wanted ice cream at like one of those places in New York City that has like you could serve like soft serve and serve it to yourself and put as many toppings as you wanted. It was hard. They wanted to put so many toppings on it. (laughs) Okay, just, you know, you guys can eat as much of this as you want. And they both didn't finish it. And it was a good exercise for me. So I, uh, I have also been playing around with it more because and it's what I hope that our listeners will benefit from, right? Just becoming more aware, like dedicating a little bit of brain space to rereading her chapter on raising an intuitive eater or some of the other people we're interviewing right now. I've also been more mindful and noticing a similar thing, like trying to notice my instinct to say, no, you can't have a second juice pouch at the birthday party. And juice pouches are actually not something that I bring into the house. It's not like a staple for us. And, you know, however ice cream is. So it's not like, but juice is just one of those things that I wasn't raised on. And I I think I do have, despite what I know about the healthy behaviors that can come from regularly exposing your kids to things like juice, like juice is one of those things for me that I just kind of avoid And it's sort of no big deal to avoid. But then I noticed that they're sensationalized at parties. And my son went for one and then he wanted a second one. And I'm thinking, well, two juices is not necessary. You know, one is enough. And then I I did the same thing. I thought, who cares? Like, have a second juice. What do I care? 
what happened? He didn't finish it. And then he didn't want birthday cake at the party. And I thought to myself, huh, I think he was, he got his sweet quota. Like he didn't like want the cake or need the cake, I guess. I don't care if he eats birthday cake. I want him to eat birthday cake. I was a little confused. And I think I even said, don't you want birthday cake? And then I thought, oh no, I'm doing it, you know? And then my other son ate the birthday cake and then didn't really want much dinner later that like he, like he just, he was obviously regulating. Like he was, he was full from this sort of like party lunch that kind of went late. And he, you know, so maybe in us sharing a little bit of how we're playing with this, it sort of can help others. I guess I hope it helps others recognize that this is it's awkward <laughs> And it's, it's a process and it does require a little bit of like, oh, wait, why am I saying no? And like, what will happen if I say, sure, like, and so maybe that's the, that's my takeaway, maybe that like hearing even from you that you're kind of in the same boat. Like, if we're in that process, like, how are other people feeling? Yeah, I, you know, I think that that's um, what we want to hear also from our listeners is what's what's hard about this or what's working. Um, and, and we'll definitely want to get for our listeners, all the research that supports this um, because I, she made a lot of references and I think that that will be valuable. And as I almost kind of want to go and reread it all for myself, just to really help myself feel like it's okay. Almost, yeah. you know, it's almost like I have to like, give myself permission which is weird because the, the process is intuitive eating and wow like mm-hmm. why do we have to give permission for that but it's, right. it's just a tricky world that we live in I think and this is obviously why we're doing this podcast well and and that you're that level of like the our social context like our society our culture is perhaps what is making this difficult for us to do. And as you were saying, you want to read the research, me too. But I'm thinking, oh, I can also just reflect on my kids when they were newborns, when they were infants. And like, you know, when it was just milk, (laughs) it was sort of less of a thing. And I think a lot of people do start to kind of get that uptick in anxiety about this around six months when solids are introduced. But if you really think about babies and she talks about this in her book like we as babies just self-regulate we cry when we're hungry we get fed we're satiated we get hungry again we cry we're you know it's like there's something really basic there that's been buried deep underneath a lot so appreciating that and reading the research and then also just reflecting on on babies (laughs) like I want to just make sure that our listeners like do they're so much more like in, in her book, I have her book in front of me and there's just so much information in this book that I think is really valuable for people to look at if they want to, you know, there's all the science in here. And certainly if you're interested in building a home library, intuitive eating really is a must have, whether you want to explore your own relationship with food or focus specifically on raising an intuitive eater, that's chapter 15. But actually our virtual guide to this episode distills a lot of the research and provides additional resources. So everyone, please grab that. It's all available. If you join our mailing list, fullbloomproject.com slash join us. We promise not to spam you. 
but we will send you a special link that will grant you access to all the virtual guides to all episodes that we've had so far, including raising intuitive eaters and also how to manage junk food. So that's our show. If you're anything like us, you too may find that today's diet culture makes raising an intuitive eater feel far from intuitive. But we hope you'll still consider these trusted concepts and let us know what comes up, whether you want to explore your own relationship with food or focus specifically on raising an intuitive eater. As always, we are interested in your take on this episode and what new parenting practice our guest inspired in you. We'll be on the lookout for your comments and questions on Instagram, so please be sure to follow us at Full Bloom Project and tune back in next time for more body-positive parenting wisdom. Mm-hmm.